Welcome to another episode of Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, along with my co-host, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. We're picking up with part two of the episode, Run Unto the Church. So let's jump into the conversation. All right, everybody, we're back. I took a little moment there to uh, find a scripture because I wanted to compare this conundrum in translations with the Septuagint that had been used by the early church writers was accepted, and then later we have this movement to the Hebrew. And this this hit me this week when I was doing some study. I was doing a, a study on the, the phrase, the steadfast love of God in the Old Testament. And it's one of the most important phrases throughout the Psalms, throughout all of Scripture in the Old Testament, God's steadfast love. It's almost parallel Whenever we talk about God's covenantal oath with his people, it's almost parallel with his steadfast love. You see it all over. One of the Psalms, Monsignor, I think it's in the 130s, where over and over it says, and the steadfast love will endure forever, the steadfast love. You know, you repeat that steadfast love. But when I was doing this research, I, I, I looked at my concordance in the phrase, steadfast love is nowhere in the New Testament. I'm thinking, well, that's weird. Why was steadfast love so important in the Old Testament, but it isn't in the New Testament? What was the deal? Until the word in the Old Testament that's translated steadfast word is the Hebrew word chesed, which can also mean mercy. And when the translators did the Septuagint, they translated that word chesed. I'm, I'm, I need Father uh, Father. Uh, Mitch Paquin here to do his his Middle Eastern accent to say that right. The word eleos in Greek, E-L-E-O-S. And when you look in the Septuagint, you find out that in every single Old Testament passage for the word chesed, the translated used the word eleos. And in the New Testament Greek, whenever that word eleos is translated, it's translated as mercy. So in the New Testament, often when you see the word mercy, what you have is the New Testament writers using the word, the Greek word for the Hebrew word that the Old Testament authors thought of for mercy. And a good example of that is where Jesus says in Matthew 9, 6, no, excuse me, um, 9, 13, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, if you wonder, well, where'd he get that from? Well, he's quoting Hosea 6.6. If you go to Hosea 6.6, what does it say? It said, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings. I remember when I was a Protestant minister, there'd be times I'd be preaching on the New Testament and then I'd look up the Old Testament and I'm saying, wait a second, they don't match. There's a problem here. Either there's a bad translation or the New Testament waters, the 
New Testament speakers were misquoting the Old Testament, and really it's the issue of the Hebrew and the Greek. If, if our Old Testaments today were translated from Septuagint, there'd be no contradiction. You know, there's just a difference. Another, yeah. another example that jumped out at me was Our Lady, when she gives her Magnificat, and she says, His mercy is on those who fear Him. That word mercy is Elo, Elias, which is the translation of chesed, chesed. In other words, his steadfast love. And in other words, that connects us with all the covenantal language of the Old Testament that expresses God's constant love for his people is expressed there. And it's also in the Benedictus when we see a little, what we say it every day, those of you, and it says, um, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The mercy in his holy covenant. That's the word for set for his uh, his love and his mercy. It, again, it just shows the difference between whether they're translating from the Greek or translating from the Hebrew. He goes on, you know, Marcus, in the in these passages to come to talk about um, uh, about these these the questions about translation. Um, yes. So, like. Well, first of all, I think I want to make on page 289, um, this is a really important point he makes here, um, about four sentences down. Uh, this is in section three. Moreover, this version of those scriptures, having been made before our Lord came down and finished before any Christians were to be seen, um, and then he dates, you know, Christ's birth and all that. Um, truly shameless and bold are they proved who would now feign to translate otherwise. So he, the story about the Septuagint, that it was an agreement of these Jewish scholars, that that's what the text says, that was done 250 some years before the birth of Christ. Um, so... It was all set in place before the incarnation happened. Um, therefore, it, he cuts this argument of the um, of the Gnostics out from under them though, that are depending on some strange translation of of um, of the Hebrew text into another form of Greek. Well, the non-Catholic Christians have often adopted more the Hebrew Old Testament than the Septuagint. And the, the problem with that is that the Hebrew text that most people use was put together in the second century AD by Hebrew scholars who were very anti-Christian. Yes, that's right, a very good point. Um, right in the middle of page 289, Yep. this, this translation well, let's go up to the beginning of the sentence. Yea, and the apostles too, who are more ancient than all of these, agree with the aforesaid translation, and the translation harmonizes with the apostolic tradition. Um, talk about baptizing the Septuagint as the authorized text. Yeah, I mean, you know. in fact, the next sentence 
what, yeah. what it's basically saying is that he's affirming that all the New Testament writers quoted the, the Septuagint. That's right. Because he even says Matthew. Even I was interested. Even Matthew, he says. Yeah. The the the, the, the you know the gospel to the Hebrews. Which is, yeah, he says, Peter, yeah. I say, and John, and Matthew, and Paul, and the rest in order, and their followers have put forth all prophetic sayings according to the tenor of the translation of the elders, the Septuagint. Well, you know, why would he use Matthew? Well, by the time, he, he has said earlier that Matthew originally wrote in Hebrew, but the only translation available of Matthew by the time Irenaeus is writing is the Greek version, and it's likely the Greek translator who translated Matthew would have used the Septuagint. Yeah. To make sure that his translation of he Matthew's Hebrew was in line with the translation of the elders. That just makes sense. Amazing. Yeah. So. Um, All right. Well, anyway, so these arguments go on now for some pages here about um, how important these these because what he wants to do is preserve these Old Testament texts, these prophecies, um, and uh, and so he's basically he's defending the integrity of these texts against the Gnostics who were depending on on something else. Um, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. That was a, that's a huge text. Yeah. Um, and then in, in over on, on page two ninety, um, three twenty one five, um, he he's dealing with Psalm um, one hundred and thirty two, eleven. That's the Septuagint. Um, yep. It's Psalm one thirty one eleven in our version now today, but. Um, what exactly does he mean, you know, um, when he speaks about um, that promise to David um, to raise up from the fruit of his womb an everlasting king? Um, and he goes, on, that's really gets complicated, I've, I've discovered. I won't. <laughs> but basically, you know, what in the world... Um, how, it's not the fruit of his loins, that text. It's not the fruit of his loins, um, uh, but that's an expression that he uses, um, fruit of his womb, um, which is actually not in the Greek, by the way. Um, it's, it's translated um, belly, but it's just a way of speaking about Christ's humanity has this human origin, um, but um, but it it's not the fruit of his loins um, that uh, which properly belongs to a man begetting and to a woman conceiving by a man. Thus, Scripture in its promise hath excluded the man's generative powers. In other words, it's the defense of the virgin birth yep. against um, uh, an odd way that the Gnostics were interpreting that passage in Psalm um, 131.11. Yeah, he, I, he, I just, yeah. I mean, he's dealing with the issues that keep popping up throughout history 
And uh, the liberals are arguing this very thing, as you said earlier, even to this day. Um, but he argues on early that, yeah, um, emphasizing the virgin. Yeah, just look right in the middle of page 291 to see he sums it up. Wherefore, such as change the passage in Isaiah, behold, a damsel shall be with child and will have him to be the son of Joseph. Uh, so basically, they're rejecting the virgin birth. Right. Yeah. So it's amazing, you know, real down-to-earth exegesis is going on here. Yeah, yeah. So those of you who have the time, look at it more, and you'll you'll see that they're early in the history of the church. You have those that are challenging this doctrine and those that are holding to the apostolic tradition to defend it. And to do that, he defends the the trustworthiness of the Septuagint translation uh, to, to be the argument of that. And, of course, the anti-Christians who will put together the Hebrew Bible in the year 200 after this. Yeah. It's after he writes, I think. It's after he writes. Um, are going to be emphasizing the very thing he's arguing against because they want to undercut the idea that the Savior has come through a virgin. Okay. All right. Let's push on, Father. Let's see if we can get okay. through. Our goal was to get through today. We're going to jump yeah. to 296. We're going to, we, may I just go back? <laughs> oh, there we good. go. We're going to be here till next Thursday. Yes, Father. No, we're going to get this done. <laughs> I just wanted to point on page 294. Yes. Um, Two, oh, sorry, 293 I am. All right. Um, here, right in the middle of the page, I ref, at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about his doctrine of recapitulation. Yep. And here he starts to develop it a little bit more, um, um, how he interprets Ephesians 1.10, um, who sums up all in himself, yea, the old work of creation, he hath summoned up in himself. Because as the disobedience of one man, sin had entrance, and by sin death prevailed, so also by the obedience of one man should righteousness be brought in and bear the fruit of life to those men who were long ago dead. So um, there you have uh, taking Ephesians um, 1.10 and Romans 5.19 and building his doctrine of the work of Christ on that, which we called his doctrine of uh, recapitulation. All right, excellent. excellent. Okay. And like you said, we'll run into that often through the book. I'd like us to turn to actually the bottom of page 295, section 4, which is that entire section is a very long section about Our Lady. It's a fascinating section. And why don't I begin reading, Monsignor, and you jump in when you want me to pause because okay. it's, it's just such an important section, because he says... Yes, it is. It very much is, yeah. And in agreement herewith, the Virgin Mary... Now, let me pause her again. Remember, he's just spent pages and pages arguing for the importance of the fact that she was a virgin, not just some young girl that God happened to choose, but that she was the virgin womb of our Lord. The Virgin Mary also is found obedient, where she saith, Behold thine handmaid, O Lord be it unto me according to thy word. 
But Eve is found disobedient, for she did not obey, having yet, being yet a virgin. As she, having indeed a husband, i.e. Adam, yet being still a virgin, for they were both naked in paradise and were not ashamed, because having been a, sh been a short while created, they had no knowledge of the procreation of children, for they were first to grow up and thereupon afterwards to be multiplied. As Eve, I say, proving disobedient because the cause of death both to him, herself and to all mankind, so also Mary, having a husband foreappointed, and nevertheless a virgin, being obedient, became both to herself and to all man the cause of salvation. And I've got that phrase circled. Mary, the cause of of salvation. And she's the cause of salvation because of her of her yes to God. Yeah. And her being and her being given as she brought 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 into this world the son of God. So this this parallel between Eve and Mary yeah. Both virgins. And Eve failed. And Mary, in her freedom of choice, fulfilled and was obedient to God. And because of that, he to me it's strong words. To to all man, to herself and to all mankind, she was the cause of salvation. And in many ways, that's where Catholic Church gets her. It's not the official teaching of the church, but it's the foundation for the idea that co Merrick is co-redeemer, co-redemptrix, mediatrix. It's not in any way, I mean, they're words foreign to non-Catholic Christians. It's not in any way making her equal with Christ, but it's recognizing her important place in salvation history. And here we have Irenaeus using this really strong phrase, the cause of salvation. And then... Marcus, you know, at the sentence that goes on, please introduces us to the idea of yeah. Mary, the entire of knots. Oh, uh, yeah. So, and therefore the law calls her, which was espoused to a man, though still a virgin, the wife of him who had espoused her, pointing to the reaction which should come round from Mary to Eve, since in no other way can that which is knotted be undone but by the unbending the loops of the knot in a reverse order, that the first tie may be undone by the second, and the second again disengage the first. Um, uh, I think Keeble made it a little difficult the way he translated that. Uh, <laughs> they, they talk funny in England in the middle of the 19th century. But I just think that is... A magnificent image of Mary. So, because of Eve's sin, human um, human exist human existence is like a bunch of knots. Um, so we can't really function the way God created us to be. And Mary, because of her obedience, Mary unties those knots so that we can be the people God created us to be. Yeah. Which really puts such an important emphasis on her 
her fiat, her her willingness to say yes. Yeah. Um, that fiat is, yeah, that's the card of it. Yeah. Down at the bottom of the page, the last sentence or so, so too the knot of Eve's disobedience received its solution by the obedience of Mary. For what the Virgin Eve bound by unbelief, that the Virgin Mary loosed by faith. And that's just a powerful It's sentence, beautiful. You know, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, that's, I think, um, that maybe the most significant thing that Pope Francis will be remembered for was when he was um, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires and he brought this devotion to Mary, the untire of knots, back to the Western world. Uh, he learned it in Germany and he brought it back and it spread throughout South America and North America now. And it's a devotion that many people follow. Yeah. And it, the whole thing is based on this text in St. Irenaeus. Yeah, I don't know if this is the first time that analogy was, was used, but as far as we know, this is the first written account of that, right, Monsignor? That's correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, the, um, on the bottom of page, and if you want, those of you who are studying this, put a footnote next to that to page 494. We're not going to go there right now, but on page 494 is a whole other section beginning about Our Lady, in which it, we mankind was bound unto death through a virgin. It is said, saved through a virgin. So, in other words, it picks up the discussion later. We'll, we'll pick that up later. But on the bottom of page 297... I think. Oh, no, 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 no. Bottom of page 299. I want to point out something that I found really fascinating. Uh, section 5 of what chapter is that? That would be chapter 23. And those of you listening yeah. to this, we're going to go a little bit longer than usual, but you can pause it and come back to it. But this way, Monsignor and I would like to finish book three in our setting here. He writes, But in Adam's case, no such thing happened, but all contrarywise. For being beguiled by another under pretext of immortality, he is presently seized with fear and hides himself, not as though he might escape from God, but for shame, because after transgressing his commandment, he is unworthy to come to the sight and speech of God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding, and the understanding of his sin caused penitence, and to the penitent God grants his chesed, his loving kindness. Now, the reason this jumped out at me is throughout the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, we encounter periods where the people have become so despicable that God's ready to say, I've had it. I'm done with this. These people are, to the core of their being, they're nasty. And so I regret having made them 
you know, I'm going to poof them away. And then you have an intercessor praying to God, and Scripture says God repents. God changes his mind. Right before the flood, we have everybody ready to get gone, and it says that God saw Noah. And in Noah, he saw a new chance. And so humanity gets a whole new chance. That happens in Egypt when he saw Moses. That happens when they're in the wilderness. And we say it every morning when we pray in the Invitatory, Psalm 95. You know, their hardened hearts as in Massa and, and uh, you know, that God said, I've had enough of these 40 generations, 40, 40 years I've put up with these people. They should not enter into my rest. Well, we know from Scripture that Moses intercedes. So the question rises, well, in the beginning, Adam and Eve failed, and God could have said, you know, every human on earth is worthless. They've turned from me. God could have just said at that point, I'm done, as he could have said later. But Irenaeus says, but the reason he didn't was because Adam was penitent. He was penitent. That was the point. He was penitent. And because Adam was penitent, he says, oh, my page turned on me. Oh, boy. Oh, because God was penitent. I'm sorry, my page. Because penitent, and to the penitent, God grants his loving kindness, his mercy. It's this, I'll get, we're going to get in a page. We'll get to the reason why he's making this argument. But what I want to hear from you, Marcus, what was the penance that Adam did? Well, it was covering up his nakedness and hiding from God. And that's what he's saying here. It wasn't because he hides himself as though he might escape from God. But it was because he realized in the core of his being that he was wrong. And so he was hiding himself in the issue of penitence. Right. Yeah. Actually, there were two penances he had. That was the first. Okay. Awesome. And the most important. But then there was the one where um, he guarded himself and his wife with the curb of continence. Um, yes. So I, I always love to suggest that to people. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to get serious about your acts of penance, um, this is this is something to think about anyway. But it's fascinating. But, you know, Marcus, um, not so to drag this out, but if you go over to page 302. Yes. Um, at the top of the page, I didn't realize this, um, but that... That first, that first paragraph we beat up with on page 302, 328, uh, in 328 section 8. He then is the deceiver who first brought in this view, or rather this ignorance and blindness. I mean, Tatian, who having come to be a combination of all heretics, as we have shown, did, however, of himself invent this in order that introducing something new apart from the rest, he might, according to the emptiness of his speech, provide for himself hearers empty of faith. Now, what he's saying there 
is Tatian was a student of Justin Martyr. So he was once part of the inner core. Yeah. And then he wandered off and he joined up with a Gnostic sect. Um, he was identified as a Valentinian, basically. But of, of a very interesting kind who believed that if you commit to absolute continence, um, you know, to be very, very strict in everything, you can basically live um, in a way that's beyond sin. And he, Tatian had argued that Adam, Adam's um, acts of penance meant nothing. Adam and his race were doomed. And so this is Gnostics recreating a whole new race by living this, this act, these acts of extreme um, asceticism. Um, anyway, it's just, I was just so interested that we would meet up with this guy, Tatian. Yeah. Um, he, he's one of the apologists of the church. If you look at a, any book about early Christian apologetics, he wrote a, a very powerful work against Greek philosophy. Um, he also wrote the Diatessaron, which is the first, um, yeah. what do we call that? You know, um, laying out all the books of the gospel in one. Um, so on the one, of, on the one hand, he's yeah. a he's a faithful Christian, yeah. But on aspects of his praxis, he goes too far, and we encounter this throughout the history of the church, like the Jansenists. Yeah. Later. Great point. So it was. I mean, so it's. I thought it made it helped me to understand what Irenaeus was going on about Adam and his acts of penance in the previous pages, um, because he's trying to say yes. Even though we've sinned, there is a part of us that still can turn back to the Lord, and um, and in a way, that's what Tatian was not willing to accept, because they were trying to recreate a whole order, a whole new order of humanity, if you will. Um, and he goes on to talk about that. So those of you reading it, you can get more detail on that. Monsignor, there's two sections I want us to finish before. Okay. For today. And the yeah. first is a real long one, but it is very important. And that is chapter 24, section one. Yes. This is just. This is on page um, 303. 302 right? and 3. Yeah. 302 and 3. And, you know, this is one of those sections that you underline in this book because it's so important. It's a summary. He's coming to the end of book three, and so here comes a summary, and here's what it says. Thus we have exposed all who introduced wicked opinions of our maker and framer, who is also the framer of this world, above whom is no other God, and by absolute proofs we have overthrown those who teach falsely concerning the substance of our Lord and the economy contrived by him for the sake of his creature for his creature man. While the preaching of the church is on all sides consistent and continues like itself and hath its testimony from the prophets and apostles and from all disciples, as we have traced out our proof through the beginning and middle and end, 
He sounds like the Hobbit. Um, and through the whole economy of God and his ordinary way of working for the salvation of man, which is by our faith, which faith received in the church we guard, and which coming of the Spirit of God is like some noble treasure in a precious vessel, vessel, continually reviving its youth and causing the very vessel which holds it to revive in like manner. Now, I'm thinking there as I read that, Monsignor, that you're just ready to say that's Newman's development theory, but I'm not going to let you say that quite yet. Because he goes on, For the church is entrusted with this gift of God, for the inspiration, so to speak, of that which he hath made, that all her members partaking thereof may be quickened, and in the same gift is dispensed and communion of Christ, i.e. the Holy Spirit, the earnest of incorruption and confirmation of our faith, and the latter whereby to ascend to God. For in the church, it is said, God has set apostles, prophets, teachers, and all the other working of the Spirit, or of none are partakers who run not unto the church. Rather, they defraud themselves of life by their evil views and intolerable doings. For where the church is, there also is the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and all grace. But the Spirit is truth. Wherefore, they who do not partake of him neither have nourishment unto life from their mother's breasts, nor receive of that purest fountain proceeding from the body of Christ. But you unto themselves broken cisterns from earthly ditches and drink water which is foul with clay, flying from the faith of the church to avoid exposure and rejecting the spirit that they may not receive instruction. That is a powerful section of his it's writing. It's a powerful section. Um, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily read Newman in that either. <laughs> but here's what I, here's what, by the way, for people that would like to look into this a little bit more, this, this quote that you read from Irenaeus finds its way um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 797. 797, so people want to see it in that way. It was one of Pope Benedict's um, texts that he treasured. I remember hearing him speak some context about this. And his point was, um, right at the beginning of uh, top of page 303, um, this idea that uh, the church is a, is a vessel um, because it contains the faith which is given by the Holy Spirit, it continually renews its youth. Um, it, it's constantly being renewed and revived. And I, I believe it was um, the context Benedict was especially thinking about was, you know, the church has come through these periods of scandal. And sometimes it has devastated the church in a place. And yet, because of the faith and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, that old broken down vessel, the institutional church, is continually being renewed. And 
that's such a message of hope, I think, you know, as we look around and see how sinfulness has devastated the structures of the church. Um, yeah. If we hold yeah. faithful um, because of the Spirit, it's what's inside that, the faith that's inside it that will renew it, will renew the structures. The reason I mentioned Newman in this context was, you know, part of his, and he write his essay, he was struggling between the different ideas to explain how ideas in the church have flourished and 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 grown and you know like i i've mentioned earlier we were talking that you know the word trinity isn't being used yet the the phrase one god and three persons isn't being used yet um you know how many wills did christ have you know that isn't debated yet so but it will later well the the, one of the more two, two common views during Newman's time, which had been around for a long time, is one that a a hard rock deposit had been given by Jesus to his apostles, closed, and there it is. And that anything that came up later, well, it was a part of it, but it kind of didn't show its head until later, but it was a part of that. Well, you know, does that mean that Jesus used the word Trinity? You know, does that what that means? So, how do you describe the, the 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 development of the church? On the other hand, you have the view that came out during the Enlightenment, and that is, well, the reason these new things came out is because we came we became so much smarter, we're so much wiser than those people. So, these new things that we've come to understand things better. I mean, that's kind of the new way. It, we don't we don't care if it was in the early deposit; we just know it better. We can explain it better. Newman is, is saying that. This is that idea. It's an organic church, that it's growing, it's maturing, its youth is being revived. You know, I mean, it's that's why I was mentioning there that there in in Irenaeus, he's not merely saying it's just one closed rock solid thing, but that there's a growth there, revivification of it by the Holy Spirit. He emphasizes, and that this. The environment where this happens is in the church. Yeah. That's the bottom line here. It's in yeah. the church. It's in the church. And yeah, because so as toward the end of that paragraph that you were reading, um, it really makes the point that um, where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and all grace. And um, if if you don't participate in the church, yeah, have you missed out on uh, access to the the Spirit and all grace? Speaking of the church as our mother, if you step apart, you're not partaking yeah. of the nourishment unto life from our mother's breasts, the church breasts, nor receive of that purest fountain proceeding from the body of Christ. Instead, you're hewing for yourself broken cisterns from earthly ditches and drinking water which is foul with clay. That's what he's saying outside the church. So here's one of the earliest writers in the church saying the necessity of being united to the church. That's right. You could almost get to the point where you'd say, Outside the church, there is no salvation. You're getting very close. 
Yeah. You're getting very... And being invert the chapter section two and being alienated from the truth, worthily do they wallow in all error, toss thereby as with a tempest, judging of the same things according to the time, now one way, now another, and never having any settled view, for they choose rather to be sophists about words than disciples of the truth, not being founded upon the one rock, but upon sand, having in it many stones. I mean, I don't know whether St. Cyprian quoted Irenaeus, but it sure sounds like Cyprian's argument was built upon the foundation yeah. of Irenaeus's argument. Certainly, yeah. And no, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have known it, the text. You know. All right, Monsignor. I mean, we, it, it's just a, a great section in this early father to reflect on. No, I was going should to take we, us should to... Should we just finish with that last, the very last part of it? Third, and set 307? Uh, 307, you yes. indicated that. Yes, yeah. yes, that's where I felt you could close yeah. us with. That's okay. such a great talk about it, and then maybe use to close that. Right. Um, yeah, because I just love how, I mean, he's, Irenaeus has been fighting a fierce fight against the Gnostics, but he never loses sight of his pastoral obligation. Our prayer is that they may not continue in the pit which they have themselves digged, but may be separated from the aforementioned mother and come out of the deep and withdraw from the void and forsake the shadow and may obtain a lawful birth upon turning to the church of God and that Christ may be formed in them and that they may know the framer and maker of the universe, the only true God and Lord of all. So he's worried about their salvation. He mentioned the aforesaid mother. we got to make sure we don't think, he's not talking about the previous thing we quoted, Mother of the no. Church. No, he's talking about these, these Gnostic other gods above our creator God, the mother and the, all those weird words he uses, right? So. Yeah, that's right, yeah. The mother is Mother Earth, basically. Yeah, and, uh, and but uh, he just but and then he he says, you know, um, just another sentence down, right in the middle there. For the love on our side, being real, is wholesome to them, if at least they will receive it. For it resembles a severe application in surgery, consuming the less natural and superfluous flesh of the wound. And that it annihilates their high and swelling thoughts. So <laughs> the medicine's going to hurt, but it's it is genuine love. And the number one place it hurts is pride. Is pride? That's right. That's that's the, that's the 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 knife because he goes on to say, we may persuade them to cease from that kind of error and withdraw from the blasphemy which is directed against their maker. To be able to do that, you've got to be able to say, I was wrong. I was and wrong. isn't it, I mean, Marcus, you've given your whole life to the ministry of the Coming Home Network. And isn't that the common theme of all the people that have come to the church is they've had to let go of something. They maybe held on to something with a prideful aspect. They've had to let go. Yeah, it is. And I will say, we've got to close here, is that one of the statements by 
Pope Emeritus Benedict, when he was speaking to the Germans, the German Lutherans at uh, World Youth Day in Germany a while back, that he was emphasizing the fact that, and he was being very ecumenical when he said this, but he says it, it isn't so much a, um, a hermeneutic of return as if you've got to give up everything. He's not, he's not calling non-Catholic Christians to, yeah. the, to the idea that everything they had has to be set aside because, he's, because he goes on to share that, there's, as it says in the Catechism in Vatican II, there's so much that we share. And that's why non-Catholic Christians reading Irenaeus is going to, are going to find, wow, there's stuff here that's a part of my faith. You know, there's a, there's a stream of our faithfulness to Christ that's there. But it does involve saying there are some things that said, well, and maybe it was because of my stubbornness or because I was misinformed. Maybe it was because someone I greatly admired, I'm realizing now, was wrong, and I just accepted without criticism that. But a part of it is, as he said, drawing and appreciate the beauty of the church as our mother. That's his emphasis. All right. All right, Monsignor, next week we're going to start book four. All right. We'll try to make it go quickly. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. give it what it deserves. Yeah. All right. right. Could you close yeah. us with a prayer, Monsignor? All right. And you know what I'd like to do in closing today is just pray one uh, petition from the devotion that um, Pope Francis helped bring to the West. All right. About Mary the Untire of Knots. All right. Holy Mother, Mother of God and our Mother, to you who untie with a motherly heart the knots of our life, we pray you to receive in your hands our lives and to free us of the knots and confusion with which our enemy attacks. Through your grace, your intercession, and your example, deliver us from all evil, Our Lady, and untie the knots that prevent us from being united with God, so that we, free from sin and error, may find him in all things, may have our hearts placed in him, and may serve him always in our brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank all of you for joining us. Look forward to being with you again next week.